it's like I no longer have energy to pretend to be a good Christian girl who is straight, feminine, submissive, quiet, wears pink. That's just not me, and I no longer have the energy to try to mold myself into that, nor to pretend that that's what I am or that's what I want to be or could be. And I also had no longer had the energy to pretend that my faith was working for me, you know? This is the airing of grief. Conversations and correspondence about spiritual de- and reconstruction. Season 3, Episode 8, Plain Sight. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Can you hear me too? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, how are you doing? Oh, uh, nervous, to be honest. <laughs> it happens. It's a strange experience. Strange way to meet someone. Like, I'm just going to call up someone I don't know and tell them very, like, raw things about my life. <laughs> what could go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> it is our uh, our bizarre little community. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm so glad to be able to get the chance to talk to you. I've really, I've really so appreciated the first couple seasons of the show kind of given me a made space for a certain sort of feeling that I have been going through a lot in the last couple years. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a couple years for you now you've been feeling that change? Well, <laughs> where to start? Welcome back, everyone. It's Kevin, and I can't believe we're already eight new episodes into this season. Eight new songs from our producer, Derek, as well. 
There's a Sufi proverb from Rumi which says, I searched for God and found only myself. I searched for myself and found only God. Whatever a divine spark might be, it seems to be carried within our humanity. And yet many of us are healing from teachings and communities which suggested otherwise, which sought to divide us from ourselves and to keep all the good things in external compartments. So we couldn't own them, couldn't feel their affirmation or their embrace or their warmth. Much of Christianity loves to talk about something like incarnation, but only in the sense of what it might say about God. It misses the equally scandalous dynamic of what such a concept might say about us. It was Jesus who said something about not building a house on sand where the foundations could not handle a storm. When the storms come, often the unfortunate inadequacies of our constructs and, let's just say it, our sheltering are laid bare. From within those shelters, we knew the roles we were required to perform. We knew how we were meant to appear. Many of us carried all of it out meticulously. But the storms came, and the masks we wore came down with the rest of the house. And yet, free of the illusion of those shelters protecting us, a burden is lifted. We sense the things that were there all along, however buried or stifled or censored in us. And in rediscovering the things that were hiding in plain sight, creativity is ignited to build something better, with all of our resources intact. The featured conversation this week speaks to all these things and more. It's a fascinating story, and I'm excited to get back into that call. But first, I want to turn to a portion of You Are Your Own from our producer Jamie, as we have frequently been doing this season. Let's get into it. The emerging field of psychoneural immunology teaches us that chronic psychological stress has the power to create physiological changes and affect consequences within the human body. This field of study connects the immune system and the brain and reveals that a trauma response affects not only the immediate bodily functioning, but long-term health. People raised under evangelical doctrines are forced to wage war with their flesh and their personalities in order to be considered holy. It shouldn't be a stretch to see that living under such chronic stress is likely to suppress immunological responses. I spent decades singing songs and repeating prayers about the sinful state of my body, and my experience is not unique. In evangelical circles, perfection is demanded, yet not attained, daily causing inner conflict and fracturing self-worth. And as Bessel van der Kolk writes, suppressing our inner cries for help does not stop our stress hormones from mobilizing the body, end quote. Rather, these cries manifest as physical symptoms that demand our attention in order to heal. The brain and immune system are deeply connected to one another by nerve connections, and the tissues of the immune system are bound to the central nervous system, or as Dr. Martin would say, quote, the brain and the immune system speak the same languages, end quote. There is an inextricable link between how we feel about ourselves and how we actually physically feel. Evangelicalism diagnoses a specific sickness 
for which it claims to have the sole cure. And this is how the power structure of that religious belief maintains psychological and physiological control over individuals. When environmental triggers that are preventing an individual from feeling safe in their own bodies are removed from a person's experiential reality, they can begin to connect with themselves and heal. So it's about February 2018, so just over uh, one year, when I just totally gave up on trying to be a Christian and all the expectations that came with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really struggling and deconstructing a bit before then, but that was kind of the the breaking point where I was like, I'm not sure if there is an interventionist God, and if there is, he doesn't seem to be helping me out. So I'm going to stop waiting for, for him to come through, and I'm just going to like try and figure out what to do with my life. Mm-hmm. And a lot has changed in that one year. I At first, I just kind of, that was the extent of the change. But over time, as I found how how freeing that was, I started letting go of more and more religious expectations, rules that I was trying to follow. And I guess in the span of about nine months, I went from sort of like still trying to be kind of a Bible-based fundamentalist Mm -hmm. um, to at this point, I'm like, I don't know if there's a God. And I'm very happy with sort of exploring like agnostic and naturalist perspectives. Mm -hmm. So there's anxiety, I guess, that comes with that. But there's also freedom. Um, Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you experience both in the same day. Uh, Yes, (laughs) yes. (laughs) In a span of hours, or and you're not you're um you're uh, on the other side of the world from us, right? Yeah. So I grew up in the Northwest in the United States, um, and then after college, I got a job in Belgium, which is where I now live, and I've been here for three and a half years. And it's the first time that I lived in a big city. You know, my upbringing was always very rural or in in suburbs. Mm-hmm. Definitely the first place that I've lived that where I wasn't completely su- surrounded by people who were white, the same religion, the same language. So it's been it's been a very intense part of my life. Mm. Um, and I've gone through a lot of different deconstructions and reconstructions, not just of faith, but of my ideas about culture about immigration about politics because i have to confront these things on a daily basis and so i feel like i've uh, like i've gone through 10 years worth of learning and three mm-hmm. like it just it just feels that intense <laughs> like <laughs> yeah so one of the earliest earliest memories i have that was related to like religious beliefs. See, was, when I was quite young, I, I, I couldn't have been older than maybe four, four and a half. And I was playing with my stuffed animals and there was like a stuffed bear that had these, it was a large stuffed bear and it had like patterned fabric on the feet. And the pattern on the feet was little tiny Christmas trees or not necessarily Christmas trees, but like pine trees. And so my parents at that time were part of a 
the the outside the group term to describe their theology is uh, Armstrongism because it was started as a cult by this one guy, Mr. Armstrong, mm-hmm. um, and then it became like a full-fledged church. Mm-hmm. But one of the main things about that denomination is that we did not keep Christmas, Easter, um, and it wasn't just that we didn't observe them, but it was that we believed that they were created by the devil to deceive the true Christians. Mm. And also they're Sabbatarians. So similar to Seventh-day Adventists, they believe that you have to keep the Sabbath on Saturday and that the observance of the Sabbath is a major part of the faith. But yeah, and so I was playing with this stuffed animal and I saw that there was this motif, which I knew, which I associated with Christmas. And I knew that Christmas was bad. And I had a hard time deciding because like, I liked this stuffed animal. I had a hard time deciding whether I would tell anyone or not. And in the end, I told my mom, she was like, thank you for telling me. And of course she took it away. And it's not like that's a particularly bad memory or a particularly good memory. It's just. It almost sounds like a metaphor for the greater repression taking place of not being able to find resonance where you would otherwise find resonance. So having to suppress or stifle the kinds of things (laughs) that you, that you would find meaningful or beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess the same dynamic was in effect when I was a teenager. Ugh, you know, I really wanted to be able to talk to other people, especially especially older adults in my life about the heavy topics. You know, I really wanted to be able to to have a conversation about about faith, about God. If there was a topic that was taboo, but I like, I this is still something I want to know about, you know, like if I showed interest in something that wasn't super approved, even if my interest was just um, curiosity, um, it, so at our, at our house, we had very little outside media, no television, but like, you know, my mom by like nature videos we could watch, no radio, you know, no secular magazines or anything, but we did have, we would get like, you know, mail order catalogs for different stuff. And so, you know, we like, we would sit around and flip through them for fun because, you know, we didn't really have magazines, but we had these catalogs. And in one of these catalogs, I found like a page that um, had like some adult toys on it. And it was like a catalog that sold like, like everything. I don't know if it was like a Sears catalog, something like that. And I didn't know what they were. And I kind of had a suspicion, but I wasn't sure. And I was embarrassed to ask, but eventually I asked my mom, I'm like, so I, I saw this, you know, or like these things in a catalog, like what, what is that? And she asked me, she's like, well, like, where did you see this? Like, how did you find out about this? And so I showed her what catalogs that I had discovered these items in. And she gave me like a very short, terse explanation that you know, ungodly women use them to pleasure themselves or something like that. And then she took all the catalogs away and I never saw them again, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was just that thing of like, in that moment, all I needed was for someone to just guide me through understanding something that I was learning about the world. But instead it was like, you never should have had to ask this question in the first place, you know? And we're going to try and remove any influence from your life that is going to allow you more knowledge about things in the world. Mm. That, that was really hard. That was really hard. 
it's scary to just being kept from perceiving things rather than taught how to engage them healthfully. It just, it's like, when does that yeah. ever work out? You know, there was a strong sense. I, I didn't grow up in anything uh, that extreme, but there was still a strong sense I had in my youth of just feeling like, like maybe, you know, parentally or within culture at large, the the expectation of Christianity was less that when it comes to going to school or anything else, it was less concerned with teaching me to be an influence for, you know, the cause of love or justice or anything mm. good, and more co- more concerned with what might be an influence on me. Um, yes. And because of that, it's actually very defeating because you feel like, oh, I am this delicate thing, and the, the danger is not... Or the danger is something posed to me, you know, like I, I'm, yeah. I'm ineffective. I'm weak. Apparently I don't, I can't even withstand these input streams. I have to just shield yeah. myself in some way. And I remember even, even as I woke up within Christianity, just, I remember saying when I was teaching from the pulpit once, I was like, you know, I learned growing up as a kid, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Uh, mm. I don't see that in anything Jesus says. I see, be careful, little eyes, how you see. Mm-hmm. But Jesus yeah. isn't trying to control everybody's, per- or Jesus wasn't trying to control what everybody allowed themselves to behold. Uh, and I, I found that distinction really important. In my parents' denomination, they're not really big on, like, proselytizing and being a light. Like... It's in their doctrine, but in practice, it's much more about shielding oneself from the outside world so that you don't become polluted, mm-hmm. so that you will be like first in the resurrection or something. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, that's definitely, definitely a big part of it. So the denomination that they were loyal to and that they grew up in uh, split when I was just a couple years old. But in the end, they did stick with the most of the doctrines that they had learned in the original church. But they didn't—they weren't really able to commit to a group for quite some time. Now they've finally kind of settled down and found a group that they've, you know, stuck with, and they're a bit less, um, a bit less black and white than they used to be for sure but for the most part they're still in that and it's one of those things where like we get along as long as we don't talk about it Mm. and so after I went to college I got baptized into an evangelical church kind of a more mainstream one and I invited them to the baptism and at that time I expected them to not come and to tell me I was wrong for doing it. But they did come and they did say, you know, they were happy for me. So I was like, oh, okay, that's, I guess they're cool with this. But then a couple years after that, I was uh, dating a good Christian boy. And my dad expressed that he did not like the good Christian boy. And one of the reasons that he gave was that he wasn't a Sabbath keeper. And, like, I still don't know what to do with that because I'm not a Sabbath keeper, you know? Like, (laughs) (laughs) but that's still, like, such a 
a huge thing in their minds. And I already set that aside, you know, when I was like 17, I was like, yeah, maybe this isn't so important. So it's, it's, there's definitely a, a distance there. Hmm. Even at that point, or even till recently, yeah, you you said as long as it, the issue doesn't come up, then things tend to be fine. So you you've had to do a lot of self censoring throughout life. Yeah, yeah. And where does that come apart for you? You know, are you feeling there are that it's it's worth keeping the peace, or do you feel like you know this this ultimately will end in more transparency, <laughs> or like where does it put you? Honestly, this is like one of the biggest struggles in my life right now is, is trying to figure that out. And I think it's kind of an ongoing learning process and kind of every conversation I have with them, I'll try and like push the envelope in a different direction and see what happens. In my ideal scenario, I would have the type of relationship with my family where we can all be very open about our true feelings without hurting each other. But realistically speaking, I don't know if that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, my whole growing up, I got very practiced at, you know, self-censoring myself from my family because I figured out as long as I kept up an appearance of being good, of being innocent, of being well-intentioned, then I could do whatever I wanted behind that mask. And I got very good at that. But the thing is, is that when this all broke down last year, the whole reason that it really broke for me is that I was sick. I was getting physically, about two and a half years ago, I went through a breakup that really made me question some things about my faith. And yeah, and then over the next two years after that, I I just crashed, like mentally and physically. And then I didn't get better and I kept getting worse. And a year ago, I, <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't function. Uh, physically and I was about to quit my job and I had no idea what I was gonna do but I like I just couldn't it's it's there's a bit too many symptoms to get into right now but I, I couldn't do anything and I was so depleted so exhausted that I for survival's sake not because I was wanting to get more enlightened or I was trying to turn my life around but I was so exhausted and I felt like I was physically like dying. Like if I lost very much more energy, I would just die. That's what it felt like. I was forced to to let go of anything that was sucking my energy. So, you know, I was like, okay, I'm gonna wear the same thing every day so that I don't have to, you know, use the energy in the morning to put on something different. You know, I'm gonna buy prepackaged food and heat it up because I don't have the energy to cook. You know, I wasn't I had zero social life, my hobbies had completely fallen by the wayside, but I was still exhausted all the time. And I started to notice ways that I was expending my energy. I was like, oh, I'm holding on to a grudge for you know some person that I feel annoyed at. I'm like, that takes energy, I'm gonna let it go. <laughs> or resolve the situation so it will be gone, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I realized that I was spending a certain amount of energy still pretending to be an outgoing, happy, friendly person, even when that wasn't what I was feeling. And I was like, well, I don't have energy for that. I'm going to let it go. Um, I And then I, like, I kind of I kept doing that, you know, and I got to the bottom and I still had these two big things. I mean, they didn't seem big at the time, but and I was like, I no longer have energy to pretend to be 
a good Christian girl who is straight, feminine, submissive, quiet, wears pink, and wants to, you know, get married and have six kids. Like, that's just not me, and I no longer have the energy to try to mold myself into that, nor to pretend that that's what I am, or that's what I want to be, or could be. And I also had no longer had the energy to pretend that my faith was working for me. You know? So fundamental identity and faith issues, those are a lot of energy if you're trying to keep up appearances. Yeah, yeah. And it was a huge shift. And it wasn't that it changed overnight, but it was it was like I don't know I don't know if you had one of those, but we had one of these um when I was growing up a book of Pilgrim's Progress that was beautifully illustrated with um, these uh, very, like, high-contrast paintings. I had that read to me in bed at night, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I was enthralled, but also it's terrifying, a lot of it. It is! It is, is like, nightmare material. But there's that one scene where the guy, like, sets down. He's carrying, like, rocks on his back up the hill, Mm -hmm. and then he, like, finally, like, sets them down. And he feels he feels relief to be relieved of his burdens. It mm-hmm. felt like that. <laughs> it's just that the thing that I was setting down wasn't what I was told was the burden, you know? Right, right. And it's <laughs> the the stuff that I was struggling with last year. I have been struggling with for quite some time. You know, I, I had already like prayed about it, studied about it, talked to you know church people about it, and the evangelical answers just didn't come through. Mm-hmm. My least favorite one is um, just take your burden to Jesus and like he'll take care of that. Right. And what does that mean? What does that even mean? <laughs> I, you know, I would like to know. Yeah. I would like to. Yeah, because it's like this is something in my person that I am struggling with that is making life hard for me emotionally, yeah. physically. So when you just give me this lofty, weird metaphysical answer as though there were, there, there's like, I can't physically give Jesus anything. So. You're going to yeah. have to go deeper. so Yeah, and I mean, there are times in life where just having a concept of an external person that you can, like, you know, give your problem to, that might help. But for problems that are big and complex, just saying, I release this problem, if the cause of the problem is still there, the problem is still going to be there. You know, it's like, oh, I have a, I have a chronic health issue. It's, it's already enough work. To be like, okay, how can I improve my quality of life and try to maintain relationships alongside my health issues without adding that unnecessary extra burden of what's the cosmic meaning of my health issue and, you know, when is deliverance going to come or, like, am I supposed to use my suffering for evangelism somehow and what's that going to look like? It's just a lot less pressure. Mm-hmm. And so in that regard, I, I don't... I don't miss that because the fundamentalist and evangelical answers for suffering that I got never actually brought me much comfort. They just gave me more questions.
But gradually, the inner voice of my own body, my own intuition, my own divine being became louder. As my relationship with my true self strengthened, I heard her more clearly, trusted her more deeply, and followed her more confidently in all things. And over time, I came to realize it had been her voice, not the voice of an external deity, that I had heard all along. So I would imagine with that level of being quote-unquote protected as a young person, um, Mm -hmm. you've had a lot of catching up to do as far as even just learning the um, <laughs> the rhythms of pop culture music film what has the, that been like yes for you? i just sort of like insatiably curious mm-hmm. um about pretty much everything i love to understand systems to understand like how you know how and why things work so because of that i feel like i feel like much of what i have learned about sort of socializing and culture has kind of been studied the way I would academically studied any other topic. Mm. Um, you know, like observation, asking questions, um, gathering media, and kind of uh, looking for patterns. It's been hard. I think mm. that when I first left home and I started exposing myself to just more culture, at first it seemed like the hardest thing would be that I hadn't watched all these movies that other people had watched. You know, I'm like... There's, I don't even have enough hours in my life to like catch up on all the view time. How am I ever going to catch up on all the movies that I haven't seen? But as time goes on and you know my social circle has changed, I've gotten a bit older, I've found that it's been, what, uh, six, seven years since I left home. The thing that is still most difficult and hasn't improved that much is the lack of socialization. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm very good one-on-one, but I have never learned how to hang out with more than one person at a time. And I'm not saying that I would have been like a super socialite if I had gone to public school. I mean, I'm an introvert, but making friends is really hard because I didn't learn how to make friends until I was an adult. And there's a lot less, people have higher expectations, adults have higher expectations of adult friends than kids do of kid friends. Right. Um, and that's... That's been hard. It's, it's not the thing that I expected to be hardest, but it is because relationships and community are such an integral part of life. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, the pop culture, I kind of I kind of consider it part of my continuing education, you know, to consume a variety of media content and kind of get a bit more in tune with, you know, what people are talking about. And when I was in college and I didn't have any money, it was um, YouTube. Like, I just started, you know, watching all kinds of stuff on YouTube. And then podcasts and podcasts a lot of educational and culture and then now i kind of added netflix to the mix and i'm starting to pursue like more specific topics that i know i want to know more about like i recently have been reading more about um evolution to try and understand how that concept actually works and now i know enough people as well that if i if i want to know about a specific topic i kind of like i know who to ask to find the resources mm-hmm so, like, it was last, uh, three years ago was the first time I ever went to a doctor, because my family also is kind of anti-doctor. And... Ever for anything? I, yes, yes. So, what if what if someone breaks a bone? 
Um, then we would go to the emergency room. Okay. My mom's threshold was like stitches. Like if it needed stitches, she would take us to the emergency room. But, hmm. and part of that was kind of like faith healing mentality. Part of it was sort of like hippie alternative medicine. Like we had like a lot of herbal cures. Um, part of it was like anti-establishment, kind of a combination. But hmm. I mean, I was terrified. And the first time I went to the doctor, it was only like, I didn't want to go, but it was because I had like, I had what appeared to be appendicitis and I was like, well, I have to go. Otherwise I'll die. So <laughs> I went <laughs> and then that kind of like, that broke the ice for me. I was like, okay, I've been inside a doctor's office. Like they didn't try to kill me. Like, I think it's okay, <laughs> but it's, that's still really hard because it's like walking into anything that's like medical or going into a pharmacy feels like I'm walking into like Satan's territory. Like the gut reaction is there. Wow. But the thing is, is I have like, I have chronic health issues that haven't really been helped by herbal treatments. And so I'm like, I want to go to a doctor and see if they can help me with this stuff. So that's been a big learning process, you know, having to navigate the medical system. And then last year, as I was thinking about more medical stuff, I'm like, I wonder what else I'm not up to speed on or haven't learned about. And I saw something about vaccines and I'm like, huh, well, my parents said that like vaccines were full of mercury and aborted fetal tissue, but you know, they were also wrong about global warming. So maybe I should do some research on this. Hmm. And so now I'm in the process of getting all my shots done. But it's this weird thing where I'm excited to be you know, making progress in like a new aspect of health and of life. I'm also terrified <laughs> because even though my brain has studied, has studied as many facts as I could, and I'm like, this seems like a thing that I should probably do and is probably not going to hurt me. My gut reaction is still, it's medical, it's bad. And hmm. it's also scary because there's a lot of things in my life right now like this, where normally this is an experience that people navigate as a child with the help of their parents and caretakers. And I'm doing it for the first time as an adult. And I also cannot go to help for that from my family at all, because they'll just be like, well, you shouldn't be doing that in the first place. Right. Same thing with like dating relationships and sex. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a few peers that I can ask and I do have a few older friends that I can ask about stuff, but it's exciting and it's scary. It's like, um, what's the word? Trailblazing. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I remember, um, I don't know what I'll call it. I'll just call it my great awakening. But I remember when, when the world started becoming bigger for me and I allowed that to happen, I remember kind of this sense that like as though there was like this voice in me that was saying, if something moves you, let it move you. Mm, yeah. And that single idea kind of rescued me. And mm. instead of, for the first time really, instead of burying or downplaying or stifling things that I found resonant, you know, and for me primarily that's always been film and music, but I would try, mm. I would do that and then I would try to place more emotional weight in things like church services even though even though there was something at my core that said these are manipulative and I'm actually bored here and so I just allowed myself that space to say whatever moves me I will let it move me and 
if this institution, say in the case of like evangelicalism, if this institution is so great, it should be moving to me, naturally. I shouldn't have to fake it. Yeah! Because, because yeah, my, heart, my heart was to appreciate it, you know? Uh. And so yeah, looking to art and creativity for meaning has been huge on my path yeah. to, to freedom. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned earlier the, the word self-censoring, like with my family. And mm -hmm. in this last year, I've had such like a creative explosion. So for my, my work, I work in IT, but my hobbies have always been making stuff with my hands, all types of, of craft, of construction projects, of different types of art. I also like music and dance. And there's never been a time in my life where I wasn't making something. But in this last year, I've had such an explosion of creativity. It's like a dam was unplugged. Mm. Uh, and like it's been flowing out of me more than it has since before I was a teenager. And before like all the heavy repression started. Mm -hmm. And my church friends kind of asked me like why I don't I'm not really attending church anymore and I don't know how to tell them this because I don't know if they would understand what I mean but I think my craft table is my church I find so much meaning and satisfaction in creating something with my hands and in this past year I finally allowed myself to express to people in my life that I feel so strongly about this that if there is such a thing as a life purpose, or a thing that I am specifically put on this earth to do, it is for me to make things with my hands. For many, this relational reconnection with themselves is a brand new experience of learning to trust and to be connected with their body for the very first time. There is no need to rush to try and change what has been brought to the surface. Noticing is the first step out of the cycle of dissociation. The development of dual consciousness are noticing what is happening within and experiencing what is happening without is crucial for healing and reassociation to the body. When a young tree is injured, it grows around its injury. That's the rub about wild and living things. They respond to their environments honestly. Our bodies are alive and wild and honest, and the ways they grow so tenaciously around the wounds of the past is the rhythm of nature, a thing of great beauty. And the internal and external symptoms of trauma are the very energies, potentials, and resources necessary for their healing and transformation. People coming out of the authoritative and traumatic religious construct of evangelicalism need to honor their resistance, remember that a new life is possible, and just keep trying. Learning an entirely new manner of living and moving in the world is like building a brand new habit slowly, except exercising a muscle that is atrophied while compassionately recognizing that the atrophy may have been the body believing it was saving a life. Be patient, be gentle, be kind, but have hope. Our bodies are on our team.
Where do you feel most free now that you didn't before? A couple years ago, 10 years ago, where are you finding the most freedom? Just in my body. That encompasses a lot. But when, when music comes on, either like in my headphones or like in the subway, that feels good to me. I just, I dance. It's just allowing my, my body to respond how it wants to respond. Mm-hmm. And that's something I could never even conceive of in my prior life. Mm. It's also like if I'm on the subway and I see an attractive person and a, you know, a lustful thought flits through my, my mind, that doesn't detract from my day. Instead, it just gives me something to smile about and then I move on. Mm-hmm. It's just like, you know, I'm just like allowing my reactions and yeah. And so I just, I feel so much more free in just existing as I am, as my body is, as my brain works. Hmm. That's really good. And it sounds like it would probably play into my last question too, which is kind of big, been the big question for me and that I've been asking a lot, which is what would you say is the hardest thought lesson that you've learned that's now most precious to you? Ooh. That's a tougher question, I know. Okay, so you mean like the thing that, like the most struggle resulted mm-hmm. in that lesson? Right. Yeah. Um, I think I would have to say that my physicality, my sexuality is not the enemy. Mm. When I was very young, I have memories of already starting to understand sort of like gender roles and stuff. Mm-hmm. But especially once I was a teenager and started getting all the purity culture messaging. And then when I went through puberty, I became very dissociated from my body. I just could not, could not handle it. And my body felt like a monster that I had to learn to control. And of course, that was, that was the framing that I had for the experience of becoming a sexual adult that was given to me by purity culture. Either you don't have sexual desire or you do and you're like an uncontrollable monster. So... I worked, you know, I worked to, like, what I thought I was doing was keeping myself under control so that I wouldn't hurt myself or others. And I was very effective at that. I was, you know, I had relationships and I, quote, kept myself pure. I was very strict with myself about media, about thoughts, about all these things. And I had no intention of relenting about any of that, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was only when I reached the end of my rope and I just couldn't, I just couldn't expend the energy to fight anymore. And I let go and I found out that I wasn't like compelled to like go raping and pillaging through the streets. You know, I didn't become right. like, I was just a human who sometimes had sexy thoughts and it was okay. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> In the time since then, I've kind of learned how to kind of reintegrate. This is just like part of being a human and also starting to learn like how to responsibly be a sexual adult, you know, and to not hurt other people with that. But in talking to women in my life, 
from my peers all the way up to people my mother's age. Most of them are walking around with this heavy burden of negativity about their own sexuality, about the way that it is, about how they feel about it, about how it seems to other people, about like how they need to control themselves or other people try to control them with it. Like it's just, it's so much. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's, that's definitely the lesson that took the most fighting for me to get to and I feel like is going to be the most significant for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Just that sexuality is not only about sex, it is about having to come to terms with the animal nature and then how that relates to sort of the spiritual and social nature that we have as humans. It's not the enemy. It is an integral part of me. And yeah, having, having feelings about that is no morally different than my body wanting to dance when I hear music. Mm. Well, wow. Thank you. I, could, I mean, I could keep talking to you for a long time and asking more <laughs> questions, but I want to be able to uh, forge this into something that Fair enough. is, is Fair. bigger than this, this moment. So, um, Thank you so much for your time, though. And, and yeah, I know that it's not as easy for everybody. So if for people that it's particularly taxing on, I, I especially appreciate the whole being social thing and, and vulnerable. I know that's hard. So thank you. Thank, thank you for listening. I'm, yeah. And I hope it didn't take too much of your, your daily mana. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but at least I no. guess you've got sleep yeah. looming since it's, it's nighttime there. So yeah. No, today, today was a good day. This is a good way to finish it up. I appreciate the work that you guys are doing so much, and I don't know what the appropriate like blessing is for a podcast, but like, <laughs> um, may all the audio sync wonderfully, something like that. <laughs> That's pretty great. That's about it for this week. Hopefully the whole coalesced into something a bit more than the sum of its parts for you. We're completely listener-supported, so check us out on Patreon to help with the work. Check DerekWebb.com for music and more. Check JamieLeeFinch.com for You Are Your Own and more. And hit us up somewhere social media-wise to comment on this or any episode, and share some of your own process in moving through Season 3 with us. And we will see you all again next week after church for the airing of grief. <laughs>